but at the front and rear, unawed and indomitable, toiled the two men who were not yet dead. Their bodies were covered with fur and soft tanned leather. Eyelashes and cheeks and lips were so coated with the crystals from their frozen breath that their faces were not discernible. This gave them the seeming of ghostly masks, undertakers in a spectral world at the funeral of some ghost. But under it all they were men, penetrating the land of desolation and mockery and silence, puny adventurers bent on colossal adventure, pitting themselves against the might of a world as remote and alien and pulseless as the abysses of space. They traveled on without speech, saving their breath for the work of their bodies. On every side was the silence, pressing upon them with a tangible presence. It affected their minds as the many atmospheres of deep water affect the body of a diver. It crushed them with the weight of unending vastness and unalterable decree. It crushed them into the remotest recesses of their own minds, pressing out of them like juices from the grape, all the false ardors and exaltations and undue self-values of the human soul, until they perceived themselves finite and small, specks and motes, moving with weak cunning and little wisdom amidst the play and interplay of the great blind elements and forces. An hour went by, and a second hour. The pale light of the short sunless day was beginning to fade, when a faint, far cry arose on the still air. It soared upward with a swift rush till it reached its topmost note, where it persisted, palpitant and tense, and then slowly died away. It might have been a lost soul wailing, had it not been invested with a certain sad fierceness and hungry eagerness. The front man turned his head until his eyes met the eyes of the man behind, and then, across the narrow oblong box, each nodded to the other. A second cry arose, piercing the silence with needle-like shrillness. Both men located the sound. It was to the rear, somewhere in the snow expanse they'd just traversed. A third and answering cry arose, also to the rear and to the left of the second cry. They're after us, Bill, said the man at the front. His voice sounded hoarse and unreal, and he'd spoken with apparent effort. Meat scarce answered his comrade. I ain't seen a rabbit sign for days. Thereafter they spoke no more, though their ears were keen for the hunting cries that continued to rise behind them. At the fall of darkness they swung the dogs into a cluster of spruce trees on the edge of the waterway and made a camp. The coffin at the side of the fire served for seat and table. The wolf-dogs, clustered on the far side of the fire, snarled and bickered among themselves, but evinced no inclination to stray off into the darkness. "'Seems to me, Henry,' 
They're staying remarkable close to camp, Bill commented. Henry, squatting over the fire and settling the pot of coffee with a piece of ice, nodded. Nor did he speak until he'd taken his seat on the coffin and begun to eat. They know where their hides is safe, he said. They'd sooner eat grub than be grub. They're pretty wise, them dogs. Bill shook his head. Oh, I don't know. His comrade looked at him curiously. First time I ever heard you say anything about their not being wise. Henry, said the other, munching with deliberation the beans he was eating. Did you happen to notice the way them dogs kicked up when I was a-feeding them? They did cut up more than usual, Henry acknowledged. How many dogs we got, Henry?